<laughs> Hello, you're listening to Gays Gaze, in which we're gay and we gaze into media that's by, for, or about ladies who love ladies. And sometimes we talk about other stuff. I'm Erin, and I'm not a flame. And I'm Erin, and a con man like you knows what love is? <laughs> the handmaiden! Yeah, I'm so excited to get into this. (laughs) Me too. Uh, Before we get started, I would say this is maybe one of the few films that I would say that you should definitely watch before listening to this, just because I feel like it's a really enjoyable experience if you're going in blind. I would agree with that. At the same time, uh, definitely, I think that content warnings are really oh, yeah. important. <laughs> yeah, actually, stick around for um, like maybe 30 more seconds. <laughs> yeah, before you click out and come back. Content warning that this film contains pretty graphic depictions of suicide, of uh, homicide, of child sexual abuse, of spousal abuse, of mental health concerns, of um, gore and torture, and... Uh, also some pretty graphic sex scenes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think, is there anything else? A pretty brief moment of attempted sexual assault, I would say. Yeah. Um, with regard to like some of the sexual abuse that happens in this film, most of it is kind of off screen, although some of it is also on screen as well. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's a heavy film with a lot of very heavy <laughs> topics. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, also colonialism is something that is talked about pretty frequently in this film as well. So Yeah, yeah. Well, then, actually, I, are we going to talk about this in parts? I would like to. Yeah, yeah. let's do that. Because I, so a big, a big thing with this film is that it's divided into three parts that can all be separated out pretty cleanly. Honestly, I feel like if you watch the first part and we're like, wow, that was a lot. I need to take a break. You could come back the next day and watch part two, come back the next day for part three. Like... I don't think that this necessarily has to be enjoyed in one sitting, which yeah. is good because it's a two and a half hour long <laughs> movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will say when when part two or when part one finished, I was like, but I got to keep watching. <laughs> at oh, least really? just a little at bit. At that point, I was like, it's definitely cliffhangery. But at that point, I was like, oh, I could shut this off and come back to it. Like if you like can tolerate a cliffhanger and like a TV show, you can tolerate this. That's fair. <sighs> God, sorry. <laughs> you don't have to apologize. I didn't get enough sleep last night. Me neither. Yeah, I, you know, have been doing a lot of stuff, like, around the house, but the past two days I've just, like, woken up and gone and sat in a chair and just hung out. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad. You need that. Yeah. I know. I'm also just having, like, a really bad brain week. <laughs> yeah, that it's not a good week to have a good brain. It feels weird to talk about anything other than what's going on in current events right now, to be honest. Yeah, that's fair. Um, We're recording this the Friday of the third day of the protests in Minneapolis. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll tweet out like a link, the updated donation places if you're looking to donate any Mm -hmm. um, to help any people who have been arrested while protesting or um, local black community orgs in Minneapolis. So I guess we can kind of start with talking about, like, before going into the summary and the plot and the themes and the symbolism and all of that, um, start with, like, the background about the movie. I'm going to be completely honest. I didn't put as much effort into this as I did for, like, Lizzie or, um, what what was the last one we did? Um, a, 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 portrait a, 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 a Portrait of a Portrait. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> Look, it took Very me a second, mush. too. <laughs> mush brain. 
Yeah, as as opposed to like some of those other ones, I didn't put as much time and energy into like researching the background of this. Like with uh, and even with Killing Eve, like looking into like interviews the actors and actresses did, facts about them. Like no, not this time. And that's just because I didn't feel emotionally up to it this week. Yeah, that's and honestly, same. I watched one Park Chan Wook uh, interview, and it ended up like being the blandest fucking interview. And, like no, like way. oh my. Yeah, it was really disappointing. I was like, I can't <laughs> believe I wasted my time on this. Okay, I was going to say, well, is there literally anything you could share out from it? or No. no. Like, wow, that it, it was pretty, yeah, I, maybe maybe it'll come up. I can be like, whoa, in the interview I watched. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this film, The Handmaiden, was directed by Park Chan-wook, and it was released in 2016, so it's fairly recent. And Park Chan-wook was definitely most known for um, a series of films that he did called The Vengeance Trilogy, which uh, the second film in The Vengeance Trilogy is Old Boy, which is maybe in America one of the most common commonly known Korean films, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Aside from now with Parasite, mm-hmm. Old Boy is like a very iconic, well-shot film about very traumatic <laughs> events and very stressful. Um, so like, I had seen Old Boy coming into this. You had too, right? Yeah, I I didn't know it was a part of a trilogy. Oh yeah, the other the other films are um Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, I believe. Wait, excuse me? Yeah. Um hold on. Sorry, it's Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and then Lady Vengeance are the two other ones. And Old Boy was the second one. So it's kind of funny that Old Boy <laughs> Old Boy is a title kind of stands out. I haven't seen the other two. Um, but all of them are about revenge uh, and vengeance, as implied by the title of the Vengeance <laughs> Trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> They're just films on like the similar theme of vengeance by the mm. same director. They're not okay. related in any way, shape, or form other than that. So, Oh, all right. Like the um, the Ice Cream Trilogy? I've never heard of that. Oh, um, fuck. It, th- that's because it's not called the Ice Cream Trilogy. Oh, yeah. By Simon Pegg, he did... It's a specific type of ice cream. Like Cornetto? Three Flavors Cornetto Trilogy. Oh, it is Cornetto. Or it's also known as the Cornetto Trilogy or the Blood and Ice Cream Trilogy. Oh, okay. I wasn't that far It includes Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I didn't know that those were supposed to be related. Just in the fact that Simon Pegg is in them and that they, they eat a different flavor of ice cream in them and then the flavor of ice cream like the color of it kind of relates to the themes of the movie Uh, i didn't know that this type of ice cream was called a cornetto because i've eaten about five billion of these little things in my life and i didn't know that they were called cornettos oh it's like it's like when you get like an off-brand drumstick that isn't fully (laughs) coated in chocolate but it's got the little drizzles of chocolate on top and it's got the peanuts on it that's a cornetto Mm. oh no i know what it is I, I'm saying it because we're on a podcast. Oh, I, I don't know if you're going to cut this out or not. No, no, I'm saying it because we're on a podcast here. Sorry, I didn't mean to be so Sorry, I didn't mean to be so short. You're not, you're totally not short. You're fine. This is good content. 
forgot. I just love talking to you so much. I forgot that we were uh, recording a podcast. <laughs> did you know that Spike Lee did a remake of Old Boy? Did I? <laughs> Have you seen it? God, I haven't. I've just heard that it's like bad, and I I've have seen, seen it. You've seen it. I've oh, seen I've the seen scene it. where he like the I forget the, the name of the main <laughs> character, but the old boy is like inside of a <laughs> the fucking <old> suitcase, <laughs> and he like he like busts the oh fuck out God. of the suitcase, and he just starts running. It's so funny <laughs> because that okay. So for context, that scene in the original old boy is like he's been kidnapped and held in a hotel for like what like seventeen years. Yeah, like, like a that. really long time. And he's finally released. And, and when they release him, um, they put him in a suitcase and like leave him on the roof of, of a building. And so he unzips himself from the suitcase and um, gets out. And he's super disoriented because he hasn't seen sunlight in 17 years. Mm-hmm. And he just came out of a suitcase. So he's like stumbling all over the place. In the Spike Lee remake, he literally emerges from the suitcase with like <laughs> badass sunglasses on and he gets out like looks in all directions and then just starts sprinting and it's like <laughs> what he's just been that movie i swear to god if you were ever in the mood for like an awful truly awful abysmal movie spike lee's old boy is a great pick like it is to the level of like it's it's hilarious it's very funny God, I really should watch it. Yeah, the ending's like a little bit different too, right? Or it it is. They like <laughs> so you know how he like um in Old Boy he like meets up with this guy in his like super fancy mansion and it's mm-hmm. like very classy. This guy has like a um uh who's the who's the evil guy in Austin Power? <laughs> Oh my god. Oh, Who is fuck. he? Um he's I was gonna say he's Mike Myers, but everybody's Mike Myers <laughs> and Austin Powers. Um Oh shit. Uh, Doctor Evil. Oh my god. Oh Yeah What possibly could be his name? Hmm, it's like something what, really complex. It's like kind of what I imagine, like if Dr. Evil and Jeff Bezos merged into a human person oh and built a like torture chamber. Um this is what I it, it looks like a Google's headquarter a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. And um he it's like it's just, it's literally wild. It's an experience. Um, it, in order to watch it, you, please, like, look up some content warnings for Old Boy. I don't want to give spoilers, but there's, like, yeah, yeah. a lot of really, really triggering content. And sure, while sure. it's not, like, I mean, it becomes a joke in the Spike Lee version, right? Because of how bad yeah. it is. So right. that, take it or leave it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's very fun to watch. You should watch it, <laughs> Oh, my God, maybe. That sounds good. I'd watch it with you if you want Yay. to. Yay! Ooh, fun. It used to be on And then Netflix. we'll do an episode on it. <laughs> oh my god, no! Um, yeah, and they try to, like, be, like, Spike Lee clearly, like, tried to, like, kind of think about what it would be like to make Old Boy. Um, because, like, in Old Boy, there's this, like, iconic scene where, um... The protagonist eats a live octopus, right? It's, like, disgusting. Like, the actor really did it. Like, reached into a fish tank, pulled out an octopus, and ate it. Mm. Uh, and <laughs> in the Spike Lee version, the villain just, like, stares at a tank with an octopus in it for, like, five minutes. <laughs> and it's like, oh. oh. my God. Like, 
Like, I'm thinking about octopuses. <laughs> wow. God, I just want to talk about old boy now. Especially I know. Old boy. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have to um, talk about old boy, but... Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, I watched old boy Park Chan-wook's vo- version, like... Uh, I think like four years ago or so, um, okay. and I, I just remember had some really beautiful shots in it, and some also mm-hmm. really amazing like action sequences, and oh specifically God, yes. like one take action sequence. Yeah, I think that at the time that it came out, it was like the longest single take action sequence yeah, in a film yeah, it was. because it's like ten minutes of him like literally taking down like baddie after baddie in like a yeah. side scrolling rolling shot. Uh, Spike Lee it's could really never. Cool. He like. Yeah. <laughs> He did that. He definitely him, but... recreated that scene, but there's like five million cuts in it. Like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Spike. Some of Spike Lee's other movies are good. This one's just not. Yeah, this one's just not there. Yeah, man. It also, just really. It, this old boy did not need a remake. That's the. It didn't. It didn't need a remake at all. Um, and we're we about ha- to make we a have to get big the left turn. We have to get the tangent out of the way now because That's true. Um, we're probably not going to go on any like funny tangents for the rest That's of this true, discussion. Yeah. Let's be real. So what I didn't know going into this, what I was told by our lovely friend Katie, is that The Handmaiden is actually based on a book, and the book is uh, a novel. That's by Sarah Waters, and it's called Fingersmith. And apparently, it's one of like the most iconic lesbian fiction novels. Like, if yeah. you Google lesbian fiction, mm-hmm. this is like the first thing that comes up. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I I did not know that you didn't know that going into no, this. No, I I never heard until of Fingersmith like before. recently. Oh, I'd never yeah. heard of this book before at all. Actually. Yeah, I think Fingersmith and Tipping the Velvet were like high school baby Aaron, like whoa lesbian media, what's that kind of things. I haven't read the Fingersmith book, but I, I do know of it and knew that this was an adaptation going in. So, yeah, I haven't read it. Um, I did read a brief summary just to see what the similarities were. And it seems to be honestly pretty similar in plot. Um, yeah. The big glaring difference is that Fingersmith is set in Victorian Britain. Uh, and the setting has obviously been changed here to Korea during the Japanese colonialist occupation in the early 20th century, sometime around 1915 to 1930. Maybe for the podcast, we will do some of Sarah Waters' books. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to read some of them now, um, especially based on an interview that I read with her that we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah. Um, going back... Way, way back now to Park Chan-wook. I read this interview that he did with The Hollywood Reporter that I found, like, fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it was also a little bit boring, but just kind of talked about, like, what he was thinking when he made this film, why he made some of the choices that he made. Um, one of the things that he said about changing the setting was that, like, he knew kind of from the outset that they wanted to make it set in Korea rather than set in... Um, Victorian Britain as the book was initially written Mm -hmm. um and so he was trying to kind of figure out if he wants to set it in Korea like reasonably in order to maintain the integrity of the plot like what era of Korea does it need to be set in and what would make the most historical sense and like a lot of thought went into it um and so in order to keep like the uh, themes of class difference, ongoing colonialism, like modern Westernism, and also to maintain the psychiatric inpatient hospital as a plot line, as a plot line, he realized that the film needed to be set in the era when Korea was occupied by Japan in a colonialist state, and um, 
this at the time that this film came out and still is a really sensitive topic to make a film about in Korea. And so in order to kind of avoid getting like too political about it, he said that he took uh, extra care to focus on the story of the characters rather on rather than on the like ongoings of society around them. Even though this, he did say that this film is supposed to be a film about class and like racial difference. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. And I do wonder, just as like a a, a white English speaking person, if there is a little bit lost on watching this movie, you know, without I don't know a- outside of the the languages, either like right. knowing Korean or knowing Japanese. And when you're watching it, they distinguish like what language they're speaking through the color of the subtitles. But yeah, I. I think there's probably an, another like level of I don't know understanding to be gained if you're if you know Korean or Japanese or both. Right. I mean, there's going to be a cultural barrier if you're a white American. Yeah, for sure. Film. Or if if you're just not a Korean or Japanese person, especially yeah. if you haven't lived through this era. Like, I feel like the people who would yeah. understand a lot more about this film are the people who are like 80 years old, 90 years old. For sure, for sure. Park Chan-wook also talked about what it's like to be a man making a movie about lesbians. Oh, Um, no. Yeah. So the interviewer asked him, among women's issues you explore is lesbianism. Why? And what he had to say was, even though I explore such a genre-specific topic as homosexuality, it was not my intention to make a human rights film showing individuals overcoming discrimination, similar to how I wanted to focus on individuals living through the colonial era rather than a story about the colonial era itself. I always wanted to create a movie that portrayed homosexual romance as something that's natural as just a normal part of life. Yeah, and it, it's funny that our last movie was Portrait of a Lady on Fire, because I feel like the sentiment is, like, pretty similar to yes. the director of that movie. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, my goal is not to to be representation. It's not to show the struggle. It's not to talk about identity. It's just to make a movie where, like, queerness is normalized. Yeah. Yeah, I thought my, that that was fine. That. Yeah, I would rather, I, I that was honestly, fine like, of all the things he could have said, this is maybe one of the best things. <laughs> yeah, e- yeah, exactly, actually. I, I was thinking <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> yeah. We can jump into the plot. Yay, plot time. Part one. I know. So I think what we're going to do is take it part by part. And so starting with part one, ending with part three, which is also the shortest one. Part one is like, really thrilling <laughs> honestly there's like like so much happens in part one that if it was a standalone movie i would be like wow yeah a round of applause good job and then it keeps going and then it's like wow yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um, do you want me to give the summary oh my gosh please okay. so it, part one A prominent Korean-Japanese heiress, Hideko, has been sequestered in her family's mansion where she lives with her uncle, Kozuki, a wealthy Korean art collector who has collaborated with Japanese officials to help them take over Korea and has earned his place amongst a Japanese elite. A young con man named Count Fujiwara becomes acquainted with Hideko's uncle, and through this he learns of her existence, and he learns that her uncle forbids her to leave the mansion. So the Count creates this plan to marry her, and then to have her placed in a psychiatric inpatient hospital, then steal her inheritance, and then run off with all the money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So to try to pull this scheme off, he ends up hiring a girl named Suki, who is a pickpocket, um, and he hires her to serve as Hideko's handmaiden and convince her to marry him. 
So Suki's primary role will be to assist Hideko with her reading practice, quote unquote. And for Suki's participation in this plan, the Count will give Suki all of Hideko's clothes and jewelry once she is placed in inpatient care, and he'll also give her a large amount of cash along with that. So when Suki arrives at the mansion, she and Hideko form this immediate and intense emotional and physical connection. (laughs) It's like within a day. (laughs) Hideko repeatedly tells Suki that she's not interested in marrying the Count. She doesn't want to do it because she's in love with someone else. (laughs) Who could that be? Uh, but Suki continues. This is, and this is after they've had sex, so. <laughs> oh, it, yeah, be- both before and after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but even through that, Suki continues to insist that Hideko marry the cow anyway, even though she is also catching feels. Like, both of them are clearly very into one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hideko agrees to marry the cow, and the two girls run away to meet him while Hideko's uncle is away on a business trip. So Suki is kind of deliberating whether or not she really wants to turn Hideko over and run away with her share of the inheritance. But when the three of them arrive at the psychiatric hospital, the Count and Hideko hand Suki over to them, claiming that she's the one who's really the heiress and she's just out of her mind and has forgotten who she is. So this part ends with Suki being dragged off by the psychiatric nurses as Hideko looks on at her being carried away. Yeah, looks on and laughs. Oh, does she? I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, she laughs. Oh my god. Yeah, the drama <laughs> of it all, the twists, the turns. Shock and betrayal. No. <laughs> Man, I, despite like, and I guess this is this is more a comment for the like, the next two parts, but despite knowing that this was a Park Chan-wook film and like seeing old boy, I, I was kind of like, oh yeah, like lesbian romance, like like korean colonial setting like okay yeah oh my goodness they're in love and wow this is like one way to to shoot a romance movie (laughs) and then this part ends like this yeah yeah and then you're like oh god damn i should have known it we've seen old boy we know your dirty tricks i know i know and also (laughs) just like just like the the mood of the movie too is not like it's not like (laughs) it's it's shot like a like a psychological kind of drama it's not yeah i don't know what i expected but i was like whoa actually in the interview that i read with him he said that he like got special lenses because he wanted to make the film look not like a drama but like a very old movie um Mm. he really he said that he wished that he could have filmed it all on actual film and not digitally yeah um and so he like went to great strides to try to find a way to preserve like old camera strategies when filming this nice. which is really interesting yeah and i think also does lend itself to like some of the ways that it's shot looking kind of thrillery too um, yeah yeah it, it that's definitely fair. lends to that so yeah god yeah this this movie is just so incredibly beautiful it's every single shot is like it looks very intentional, very well thought out, very planned, and just beautiful. God, it's just, it's so beautiful. And then, it, so you you get this whole, like, kind of, like, start to finish story in the part one. And then it is kind of nice that in part two, you get to revisit some of those scenes and, like, see them from other perspectives. Right. Um, 
and and just also experience like how beautifully shot it is kind of again <laughs> right because we'll get into part two but part two is all yeah. just flashbacks all like alternative tellings of what you had already seen in part one yeah um, I, there's just so much happening <laughs> in this one short part that is so good that it's hard to even like know where to start with it i know yeah you want to talk about the sex scene i have things to say about the sex scene so yeah we've already mentioned it they they have sex um (laughs) i (laughs) flawless um The sex scene in part one, it's pretty short. Uh, The two women, they're lying in bed together and uh, Hideko is like, oh, you know, on my wedding night, like the count, is he going to want me? And then specifically she says, like, is is he going to think that he's making love to a corpse? And uh, Suki's like, no, 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 you're so beautiful. You're so lovely. Like, here, let's like do some like kissing practice like you know like you do no homo and then they they start touching each other and then eventually the scene ends with uh suki like eating out uh hideko basically but and they don't show that they just kind of like show her like going in between her legs and then like sticking her tongue out (laughs) and what is like (laughs) honestly a very funny scene like we both yeah we were like i I feel like it's kind of intentionally funny yeah (laughs) there's a lot of like like, dark humor Yeah. So yeah, actually, I did not find this scene particularly like male gazy. And yeah, I think of all the sex scenes, this one was the one that I was like, all right, that's fine. I completely <laughs> agree with that sentiment. I was like, uh, all right, this one, this is like a okay. Um, I was like, wow, too, that's great. There's not really anything too off about it, to be honest. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it was fine. All right, yeah, any any other thoughts on, like, part one? No. Yeah, I, I will say, so at the, with part one, it, it's definitely, the narrative is so that you're not totally sure what, like, Suki is feeling, mm-hmm. that, like, um, Hideko is, like, definitely interested in her and is, like, and is literally, like, I'm in love with someone, I don't want to marry the Count, how do you feel about that? Like, and is in the context of, like, I don't have anybody else in the world. Right. Um, but I'm still in love with somebody. Like, I wonder who that could be. Right. Because it's um, literally just yeah. her alone yeah. in this mansion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, but you don't really get Suki's response to that. And it kind of seems like she's, she wants to go through with the betrayal and then is double crust so so that was my understanding of like the part one and then it was like Ooh, all right time to go into part two part two is made up of five different flashbacks that really just provide more exposition for like what happened in part one so like how part one could be a standalone film part two is like all of the extras that give you the information that you need to know about what was happening behind the scenes. First, the first thing that we learn, and this is regarding a lot of the like trauma and content warning shit that we talked about earlier on. So Hideko's reading practice that Suki is supposed to be helping her out with um, is actually the performance of formal readings of this very sadomasochistic literature to a male audience that her uncle hand selects. And her uncle had begun training her to do these readings um, and perform erotic literature since she was only five years old. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you see a little bit about what that training process was like. Second, we see that her uncle had uh, also made her aunt perform, and um, the repeated trauma that her aunt experienced from her uncle's behavior severely degraded her mental health. 
Um, and one day they find that Hideko's aunt has been hanged from the tree that's in their backyard. And everybody in the house kind of just assumes that she died by suicide. But Hideko tells her uncle that she had read a book about what happens to bodies when they're hanged, and that her aunt didn't show some of the common physical signs that would have been seen. Um, and so she doesn't know if she was really hanged or not. And so then her uncle takes her into this secret basement that's filled with torture devices, and he reveals that he actually murdered his wife and covered it up as a suicide. Yeah, and he murdered her specifically for attempting to run away. Yes. Also, I I will add, though they are like depicted as torture devices and used as such, uh, they are actually bookmaking materials. Oh, really? Yeah, like specifically the there's the paper like an, cutters. Um, I know that they use paper in cutter. Part three. But yeah. yeah, there's also um like this kind of like um a screw i guess that like that that's used to like press books together i believe it's supposed to have like a, a hard or like a flat metal bit at the bottom but that that's been removed so it's just like kind of a piercing device but i believe they are all bookmaking things okay. so he's um, able to but, pull that con off too because yeah. she's a child so she like totally but also he definitely used them to murder he definitely he, oh <laughs> so. totally totally and there's a fucking like octopus down there yeah um, um it, it, which is like depicted frequently in the pornography what's up with um, him and octopuses so th- uh, what's up with you Oh, oh, you're right. I don't know. Well, he they also show many uh, like traditional art prints of mm. like women having sex with octopuses. So. Yeah, yeah. Which would yeah. So between <laughs> like the torture devices slash bookmaking stuff and the slash octopus, the that would prints. that's like more than enough. Yeah, to get to get the picture. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Um. So in the third of five scenes we learn that the cow actually knew that Hideko hated him, but he also knew that she wanted freedom. And so he had brought her in on his plan and he told her that he would help her escape if they could split her inheritance. And we learn that Hideko was actually the one who requested a handmaiden in the first place to send to the psychiatric hospital in her place. However, the love that Hideko felt for Suki was real and unexpected and totally derailed that plan. Fourth, when Suki continued to insist that Hideko marry the Count back in part one, Hideko attempted to hang herself from the same tree that her aunt was hanged from, and Suki found her, and both women confessed that they had actually been plotting plans against one another, Uh (laughs) and then they realized that the Count and the uncle are really the ones (laughs) that they need to be worried about, and um, so they start to plan a way to escape together, and they write out the kind of the tenets of their plan and then they send it to Suki's friends and family back home. Mm-hmm. And finally the fifth flashback, uh Suki learns that Hideko's uncle had been forcing her to read that literature since her early childhood and fueled by all of the rage that she felt when she learned this, she started to destroy his collection of rare books and artwork and Hideko joins in and they completely destroy his library before running off to meet with meet up with the count. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how part two ends. Did I miss anything? I think that those are all the major um, ones. Yeah, I think that's it. There's the rehashing of the sex scene, right? Or is that in part three? No, no, that is in part two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the sex scene is told again from like Hideko's perspective. And basically it's just like in part one, you're kind of like, okay, like it ends with Suki eating out Hideko. But nope, actually there's a lot more than that. Yeah. Oh no. And this oh is when it gets male gazy. <laughs> yeah, this is when it gets so fucking like just like textbook male gaze. 
Oh my god, yeah, so... I, I just, like, I feel like I've blocked a lot of it out, but they does, like, end with them eventually. So, yeah, Suki, Suki eats out Hideko, and then they 69, and then after that, they scissor. Right. <laughs> and just, like, I cannot fucking take it seriously. <laughs> um, and then, and Suki, like, while they're scissoring, is like, wow, Hideko, like, you're a natural. Like, I can't believe, like, you've never had sex with anybody and or, like, knew about sex at all. Like, Wow. <laughs> Which is just like, oh my fucking god. Right. Which, <laughs> let's now get into Sarah Waters and her take on all of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, um, Sarah Waters, again, the novelist who wrote Fingersmith, um, she did an interview with, with The Guardian, and um, one of the things that she said about Park Chan-wook was that, quote, he does a lot more with the pornography because he turns it into a spectacle. But for me, it was all about words. Um, So first of all, openly admitting that he, like, very much, like, wanted to make it very pornographic. Um, Mm -hmm. Second, she talked about how, um, and again, I haven't read the book. She said that in the book, like, she tried to write about women finding beauty in things that are, like, painful or, like, painful requirements of like male culture or like looking good for men and women finding the beauty and like the removal of that and so um some of the things include um like admiring corset marks on a woman's skin after she removes her corset this one is left in the film this is the only one that's left in (laughs) like looking at like blisters on people's feet from wearing uncomfortable shoes um uh, like ogling sweat stains on dresses <laughs> Ooh, ogling such uh, yes. a good word um <laughs> and uh she said that because of the, like her intent in doing this was to clearly differentiate the two women um that are having this relationship from the fictional women in the pornographic literature that hideko is reading right mm-hmm. um however like this is totally absent in the movie and Waters admitted herself that Park Chan-wook didn't do this, saying that uh, that the two of them are like, they are like mirrors of each other, um, which she found troubling uh, because it blacks out the difference between fiction and like reality. Um, but then she said that she had a conversation with Park Chan-wook about it, and he said that his intent was to bring a mistress and, like, a uh, like poor sewing girl together as equals and show them as equals in that moment and make it more about reducing differences between class rather than differences of gender, which is just kind of odd, but she was very much on board with this interpretation, too. Yeah. So... And I... Yeah, I do. They do very much feel like equals. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's achieved. It's just that I mean, did they need to have sex like that in order right. for that to happen? Like right. the answer's like no. And actually. so to touch on that, what here's a quote from Sarah Waters. It's okay. A, Though ironically, the film is a story told by a man. It's still very faithful to the idea that the women are appropriating a very male pornographic tradition to find their own way of exploring their desires. So basically saying that the plot is that, like, Hideko, like, has to read all this pornographic literature and then she takes it and morphs it into what she's learned from that into something that she likes. So, fine. (laughs) Okay, yeah. But... (laughs) I feel like that is more explored in the final sex scene. 
Yes, I'll agree with that. Yeah, because I just like I don't know. I like as as a lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> I have not watched a lot of lesbian pornography that is intended for male consumption, but I have yeah. a little bit. And it's just, I feel like that only was a hindrance to my understanding of my own sexuality growing up, basically, is that was like, it was like a hurdle I had to get over, <laughs> basically, right. you know, and it, yeah, like it was only a hindrance in my mind, right. or at least in my experience. And very much the depiction here is that it is helpful. It is that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm sure that's not everybody's experience, but it certainly was mine. So yeah. And this film definitely differs from that experience. Yeah. So <laughs> and if like this was a woman director and who depicted this, I think I would feel differently about it. But because it is a male director going into all of these like stereotypes mm-hmm. of like a heteronormative understanding of lesbian sex. I'm just like, I'm like, I could do without this. Like, get this out of here. Right. It definitely like feels like lesbian porn for straight men watching. Yeah. Like, oh, this, totally. This yeah. Yeah. And I, I know that we differed on this in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but where you were like, I found that their sex scene to be kind of male gazy, And I was like, I didn't. I think like a scene like this is like very very similar to like what I was talking about in um blue is the warmest color. Yeah, where this is like literally undeniable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, there's no room and, for conversation about it. It just is. Right. Yeah, actually, yeah. And so you know how terrible the blue is the warmest color God, scene is. It has is. to be really it's, bad. It's like th- it's like this this part 2 sex scene except like four times as long. Oh my god. Yeah. I'm not even joking. You brought up something very interesting, which was um, Raguko. Uh, Rakugo. Rakugo. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert. I, I just want to say this. I'm a white American who's not <laughs> an expert. I just know a little <laughs> bit about Rakugo. So Rakugo is this form of traditional Japanese storytelling that is most commonly comedy. It's not always comedy. There are many different types of iterations of Rakugo that also have different names associated with them as well. But the the hallmarks of Rakugo performance is that um, somebody reads a short or recites a short story um, in front of an audience. They dress in formal traditional wear, sit on a small cushion with a book in front of them and do a live reading. Um, and it's very important that you do proper pronunciation and otherwise the story can't quite get a, get itself across. Do you know the book, um, the children's book, Riki Tiki Tembo? Yeah. Yeah. So that's based off a uh, Rakugo story. Wow, um, really? Yeah. The Jigamu Jigamu story. Do you know this? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of those like traditional stories have kind of bled into American culture, repackaged by people for profit. <laughs> you know but the thing about this and how it's used in this film so it it, for me it seems fairly obvious maybe i'm totally wrong in this interpretation definitely accepting criticism um it seems that hideko is performing rakugo for um like a weird eroticized rakugo for um her uncle and in the context of the story it actually kind of makes very clean sense because he is a Korean man who is totally enamored in Japanese culture, trying as desperately as he can to seem Japanese to fit in with these Japanese political officials he's been aiding, right? Um, mm-hmm. And Rakugo is a type of performance that it's something that a tourist would see if they're visiting Japan or like learning about Japanese culture. Um, and so it makes sense that it's something that he would bring home and try to replicate at home as like 
um, a part of demonstrating, like... Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting, because yeah. I didn't know that prior mm-hmm. to you um, introducing that concept. It just felt like a very smart way to address the Fingersmith plotline and take it and make it culturally relevant to the setting here. Um I don't know. It just it felt very satisfying to to like think make all those connections of like oh my god that he had to like take this book and like adapt like whatever like poetry readings or whatever to try to fit them into like the cultural context of the like Japanese imperialist command. It's it's it just felt very good to yeah to see it, I smart guess. yeah. I think the other thing uh that was introduced in part two that I want to go into. Uh, is in part one, there's um, certain phrases that will be said to Suki that she like basically repeats. Like what was told to her when uh, her mom died about how her mom like was so happy that she was born. She then repeats that to Hideko when she learns that Hideko's mom had died. And also the Count like talking about how he like would woo a woman and like tell her that she's beautiful. Um, Suki then like says that to Hideko at one point. I really liked that that was continued in part two with certain things that are said to Hideko or that she overhears, she then repeats. And some of them um, are actually things that she said in part one that you didn't like when she talks about how she thought that making love to her would be like making love to a corpse. That was something that she had overheard the Count saying, uh, which you find out in part two, basically. And so that was an element of the movie I really liked. It like so cleanly ties everything together to like really oh, yeah. so the narrative yeah yeah, yeah. man <laughs> yeah liked it can i transition us a little bit yeah for sure um, so i received uh two memos from people actually this week can you believe it so gracie Gracie of of uh, our Killing Eve episodes, who will be returning, I hopefully very soon, sent me a message a while back that I hung on to. Um, when she learned that we were gonna do the Handmaiden, she like gave me her little tidbit. Um, so this is what she had to say, uh, about the film. It's actually kind of cool because Park Chan Wook has spoken on how he feels uncomfortable with how women were portrayed in Old Boy and in his older work. In The Handmaiden, he actively wanted to make something that gave his female characters agency. Sexual abuse is definitely a big part of the movie, but it isn't shown on screen in a super explicit or outright violent way. It's just talked about and heavily implied. And I think because of the way the movie handles it, it's very cathartic and healing and good. I don't know. It's a great movie. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. Yeah, it definitely seems like (laughs) when you think about the female characters in Old Boy. Yeah. I mean, really only one comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, there's the one primary and no agency, no, literally utilizes a as an object throughout the whole film. Yeah. Um, and to, I, I guess, like, I haven't fact-checked this, but to hear Gracie say that, like, that this was something that he, like, felt some remorse over and wanted to try to correct um, and looked to Sarah Waters <laughs> for guidance is, like, I don't know. I think that that's a little bit satisfying. Yeah, definitely. Second, also with pertinence to um, the cathartic elements of this film, um, I was talking with Katie the night that I watched this. Um, cause Our I, friend. Yes, because I kind of wanted to start to stop after part one. Um, and mm-hmm. then once I decided to keep watching part two, um, I, part two opens with all of this like really heavy trauma shit. I was like, once they 
like I, I like I got to a point where I was like I don't know if I want to keep watching this so I messaged Katie and what I said was um I almost stopped watching for the night in the scenes where the uncle is forcing Hideko to read pornographic literature and then with the aunt's suicide I was like um I'm not really feeling this movie anymore guys <laughs> um but I just got to the point where Suki destroys Hideko's uncle's artwork very cathartic and I'm glad that I kept watching and then Katie had some brilliant insights that I need to share about the book. Um, this is what she said. Here's my main movie issue versus book. In the book, Hideko's character destroys the books. And in the book, Suki's character gets herself out of the sanatorium. So I hate the autonomy that is taken away from them here. I still like the movie, but I think that it is super. There's a lot to be said about... Um, what you choose to highlight in terms of like agency and decision making when it comes to how women are depicted in film, right? If in the book, like Hideko is independently healing and Suki is independently learning how to stand on her own two feet without assistance, that is like thrown aside for the purposes of this movie in order to highlight their interdependence to strengthen the romantic bond that you see on screen, right? Yeah. And I, this, I haven't read the book. And I, I think that in, I think that this is like a totally valid, um, interpretation. I will say that for the, like a structure of a movie, it fits a lot better to kind of have romance be the focus. Right. And, and additionally, I don't know with, um, I, again, I haven't read the Fingersmith, mm -hmm. but I, Suki, she, she has this hairpin, um, from her. Uh, adoptive mother which is like used to basically unlock things and um Hideko before she goes into the sanatorium is like oh this is my mistress's hairpin from her mother like give this to her it'll help her feel better and uh, that's what uh Suki then uses to unlock her the chains on her feet and then uh Hideko who's disguised as a fireman like that's then not like they basically escaped Deku. that's not what? Hideko. It's not? no that's the that's oh, the it? boy that she like grew up with like her like adopted brother oh is it yeah oh you're right oh my god mm -hmm. yeah no Hideko isn't there at all yeah you're right Oops. um yeah so right, she literally yeah. has to be saved by a man in order to escape well but actually so. but in the book she's given a a key file by a boy that she knows from her childhood oh okay so it's like it's i mean Either she's still way. like yeah so, yeah so, i mean but she's still she's still escaping i know so i don't know i, <laughs> I all i want to say about this is that i don't think that either approach is bad i think that they're just highly different and i think that they lend to yeah. very different interpretations of the film i think that yeah if you're, exactly it, like looking to the book them as individuals obtain their independence from men and then they choose to be together right in the movie they can't obtain any sort of independence without having interdependence on one another to move forward, which is fine. But I think that both of those <laughs> approaches are fine. One, I think lends itself a little bit well to a little bit better to um, representing like trauma recovery. I think at least with Definitely. this like destruction of the, um, I the library scene. Yeah, I will say I di I liked the the like destruction of the library scene a lot, and I specifically liked that it was Suki destroying it, um, and then Hideko like eventually joining in because I I think if you have been like very like brutally traumatized, taking that step is 
uh, and to kind of like recover is very, very difficult. Yes. And just kind of having a comrade with you is can be very healing within itself of just that validation of like what has been done to you is wrong, especially if you've been raised in an environment when where like somebody's saying, no, this is fine. Um, and I think Hideko like joining in at the end is then aided like in a scene where they are they're basically like jumping the fence of the property and Suki she just like jumps over the fence like whatever let's go and Hideko is like standing there like basically like too afraid to go over and then um, Suki comes back over the fence and like like basically like stacks the suitcase to be like all right come on like get over (laughs) like I'm gonna help you over and I think I don't know. I, I feel like that says a lot about recovery as well. Yeah. L- like I Something said, they're, different, they're just but like different, not a bad thing. Right? It, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do feel like the the what is depicted in the movie lends better to a movie narrative. When I, wa- when I first watched this, I was like, I love this because you can like, d- at least for me, I can deeply relate to being in Suki's position, like learning that like somebody that you deeply care about has like experienced some absolutely horrific trauma and then just wanting to destroy every single thing that the person that heard them. Is yeah. Saying, right. Like so relatable. Yeah. Um, But I also had this nagging thought in the back of my mind that was like if this was a heterosexual romance i would hate this subplot i would absolutely hate it and so like why am i not thinking why am i thinking so differently about it because it's two women like it, and i i don't know no i totally understand what you're saying and yeah very very valid i don't know i think even even if it was heterosexual i don't know I, I think I would still feel the same way that I just said I felt about it. I, the reason um, that I wouldn't like it if it was heterosexual and why I still am dubious as to whether or not I like it here is because um, it's somebody taking the power to make decisions about their like healing journey away from them. And when it's more clearly demonstrated, I think if it was like a guy finding out that his girlfriend had been abused and like destroying everything. Um, sure. I just like... I, I think that if you were in, like, Hideko's position, I, I don't even think that destroying the books would, like, kind of occur to you. I think it's kind of, it's only an outside perspective that would be, like, this needs to be destroyed. It, it's just, it's two different and both valid approaches. It's just that it's, like, they're different. Yeah, the other thing about the book that I, I'm glad that they changed it was Suki's character goes into the sanatorium not knowing that Hideko like actually loves her really? basically. Oh my yeah. god. So yeah, and like <laughs> and then comes out of the sanatorium like I'm gonna freaking murder Hideko and the count. So oh <laughs> that's god. like also kind of okay, well, I don't so like, like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think okay, so that's like also my perspective. <laughs> Maybe I would like it if I watch or if I read it, but Alright. Are we ready for part three? Yeah, I think I'm ready for part three. So in part three, it opens with Suki in the hospital and the building erupts in flames (laughs) and um, Suki's (laughs) friend slash adoptive brother appears posing as a firefighter. And it's clear that he's the one that also started the fire and he helps her escape um, the burning building. So that was a result of the two of them writing to her friends and family with guidance. Um, so at the same time that that's happening, Hideko poisons the Count with concentrated opium. Um, and while he's passed out, she takes all of the money and she leaves. 
Um, <laughs> after that, Hideko sends her uncle a letter to notify him that the Count scammed them and that she was leaving with all of the money. Um, Hideko's uncle captures the Count and then he tortures him by cutting off all of his fingers. Um, yeah. In a very, very gruesome scene. Yep. Uh, the Count tricks the uncle into letting him have a cigarette which is actually a mercury cigarette that he's kept on hand to use to kill himself if he needs to. So the smoke from the cigarette slowly fills the room and it kills both the Count and the uncle. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, Hideko has stolen and forged her uncle's passport and she's dressed herself in a fake mustache and a suit. Which is so good. (laughs) good. She's like, oh my god, I love it. (laughs) And then she and Suki board a ship together safely, and they manage to escape to China together. And once they arrive in China, they have sex in their hotel slash their new apartment. I don't know. Oh, I think that was on the boat, actually. was it? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure they were still on the boat. I thought that they had arrived. Those looked like boat windows. Okay. They're like little circle, like portholes. Okay, well. I'm pretty sure. Once they're safely far enough away. Yeah. They have sex. And this one. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my fucking god. They are fucking. It's like, it's like fucking sleigh bells. They, up in they, here. Are, they are. Oh my god. So there's two chairs. That are like slightly turned towards each other. They're both on their knees facing one another while sitting on the chairs. You know, like you do. Optimal for sex. It's (laughs) clearly for the visual effect of the film and not for the practicality. No, of of course, of course, of course. But that's just like so typical, like 100% male gaze. Like, like, look at these ladies. They're having sex with these... uh, sex spells do we ever so we didn't confirm yeah they they might be benoit bells Bells, not bells definitely they wouldn't jingle which is what is very confusing about all of this because they are clearly jingle bells (laughs) well no no so but there is a type that it is it is a circle um and then it's hollow on the inside, and then there's a smaller ball on the inside. That is the weight. And then it, it's supposed to, yeah, yeah, and then it rattles around. Mm-hmm. So, like... Yeah, so it's presumed that they might be Benoit balls, but also, who, like, really knows for sure? Um, we we do not. Um, I did... <laughs> um, I did go to this website that I found very funny for very silly reasons have you ever heard of the moviespoiler.com oh no i went to the moviespoiler.com will you uh go into our google doc and uh click that little link right there uh go for the the home page probably first it is hideous it's uh very when uh, was this made um if you'll take note on the home page uh they're still updating it today um wow so the moviespoiler.com is this, like, it looks like an Angel Fire website. I'll link it out on the Twitter if you want to go to it. Or you can just literally type in the moviespoiler.com. Oh my god, um, that gif is moving at, like, two frames a second. <laughs> I know. Um, and um, what they do is they write a summary for every movie. All of them. And um, if you want to be spoiled in the ending of a movie, you can literally go there and they have it all. Um, I um, was like losing my mind when I read this, these like couple sentences about the handmaiden, just because it's like, it, it's so obvious, but it's also so silly. 
Uh, Suki and Hideko <laughs> go into their new home where they kiss and have a long sexual experience, affectionate and in love. They put the Benoit balls in their mouths and then inside of each other's vaginas. End summary. That's the end of the summary. <laughs> the end of the page. The That's it. I'm pretty sure they're still on that fucking boat. Wow, I, I'm also looking at the, the sent like, two sentences above that is just, the uncle dies. <laughs> I know! The uncle dies. Um, also, immediately under that paragraph, this is, this short summary is brought to you by the movie pooper. <laughs> Who? The movie yeah. pooper? Wait, I'm clicking the, on it. Am I? Am, that's what it says. I know, I clicked on it. Why is he the pooper? It says, here's here's what it says, uh, why movie pooper? Because sometimes the surprise spoiler ending is the only reason you'd pay $11 to see what is otherwise in a turkey of a film. Basically, it's just there to spoil <laughs> the ending for you if you really need it. I love it. Wow. Um, also, it says, because sometimes you vaguely remember an old movie that had some sort of plot twist at the end of it, but you can't remember what it was. That's when you need the movie pooper. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, movie pooper. Um, um, oh my god, we're talking. The, the movie pooper has derailed us. Oh, <laughs> he, he pooped all over again. our podcast. <laughs> um, um, god, what do you have? What do you all have? Right, yeah, part, part, part three. We already went over part three. <laughs> what else do you have? No, to I add? know, but yeah, I don't. What do you have? I to have add? nothing else. To add. Add. Yeah, I mean, just really the the. I I was like, wow, what a satisfying conclusion to this movie. I love that Hideko is wearing a fake mustache. That's like actually kind of mm-hmm. hot. But then the Jinger Balls kind of ruined it for me. Yeah, it's they're legitimately um, the Jingle Balls. I just don't know, man. I feel like okay, a controversial opinion. I'm I'm glad that it ended with them together, but ultimately, I feel like I so deeply enjoyed part one that like. Parts two and three didn't live up to that for me personally. I will say I, I, I just like I'm kind of a sucker for like like a psychological tale every once and again. Mm-hmm. So not knowing that this was that, um, yeah, part two like really hit it for me, and um, especially like once it gets going and they confess to each mm-hmm. other that they like are in love, that was really satisfying for me, and also that. Uh, Hideko, who in part one seems to be very naive and like mm-hmm. being seduced by the count, that actually like none of that was what was happening, and it's just that like Suki was like very young and naive and didn't really right. realize that she was the one getting played. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I reveal. I liked. It's a good reveal. I I enjoyed this a lot. Yeah. No, I definitely like loved the loved watching this, even given like the male gazey. Shit. yeah and even given like <laughs> despite yeah and even given like how grossly like traumatic watching some of it can be like i still yeah for sure um, and found a lot of like gracie said like that it feels like healing once you get to like the end of part two. yeah like it feels like a restoration of like the narrative that should be happening here right yeah and one of the final scenes is as uh hideko's uncle is torturing the count um he's like please tell me about your wedding night because obviously this guy is like a like (laughs) disgusting pervert (laughs) yeah um like scum of the earth type of person um and uh so you know in part one you just kind of assume that 
Hideko like had sex with the count and and then it's like revealed that she she just was like whatever and she just like masturbated in front of him and then like cut her hand and was like okay we're done here yeah to leave Um, blood on the sheets yeah yeah which i also liked because you know blood on the sheets like that's like a that's an urban legend basically that's not what happens narrative though yeah Ooh. right Ooh, baby um yeah so i liked that that was yeah it was just like bullshit yeah oh my god one silly thing that I didn't. We didn't talk about it all, but that I just also appreciated about the bridging of the gap between the novel and the film is that it's very clearly stated early on. They're like, half of the house was made in the style of British architecture, and half of it was made in the style of Japanese architecture because the master enjoys both. And um, so then you get all these scenes that feel very Victorian and have like very Victorian fashion in like rooms of stereotypical like Victorian opulence right and then at the same time you get these like rakugo scenes and like the japanese library and the the architect it's all so good and so like once again clearly thought out yeah such a great setting um man yeah i i would love to look up where this was filmed yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i wonder if they used if there's a house yeah i wonder if like this house exists and um I don't know. Can we go there? (laughs) It's. I mean, it was in Korea. Remember? Oh shit! You're right. Sorry. Oops. Um. If anybody knows if that's like a real place or is down to look into it, please do so and let us know. I don't have the emotional capacity right now to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll look it up. But if I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah, but that's that's about it. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Good movie. Yeah, I liked it. I had so much fun watching it. Same, um, like, it's good to yeah. watch hey did you know that it's good to watch good movies wah 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 <laughs> yeah i um <laughs> I, <laughs> can i tell a little anecdote before we wrap up oh my oh yeah i'd love that okay. um i uh had this i guess i i don't remember any of this had this conversation on tuesday so that's three days ago now with uh katie about um watching movies and um i like she i asked what i should do with the rest of my night when we're getting off the phone and um she was like you should watch a movie and apparently i said i hate movies and i'm never gonna watch another movie again and this is why and like kind of like went into like why i was sick of watching movies and like didn't want to watch any more movies unless i had to for the podcast and then literally i watched the handmaiden and hbo max came out and i was like all right i have to make a letterbox and (laughs) build up my queue of all these like artistic films i want to watch oh my god <laughs> literally within Aaron. like two days i had completely forgotten everything and like yeah you're you are allowed my brain broke and you're allowed yeah anyway if you want to follow me on letterboxd i'm worm moon <laughs> no spaces no nothing you can follow me you can see i've ma- somehow managed to remember get okay guess how many films just off the top of my head I was able to remember that I've seen that I could put on my list. Three. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know, like 20? Uh, Try uh, close to 500. Oh, good job. Yeah. That you could like rate? I I didn't rate any of them. I just added them to my list for now because I was literally sitting here like, oh, "Oh, like what's the, oh, I watched this one. Oh, I watched that one. I got to put it on the list. (laughs) And then sometimes it was like uh, me Googling 
Hey, uh, hey, Google, what's that movie where uh, it's Japanese musical and uh, it's about a family that starts a bed and breakfast and uh, then they murder people and there's zombies and then they come back from the dead? Wait, what movie is that? <laughs> um, it's The Happiness of the Katakuris and uh, it oh is God. by Takashi Miike, who made Audition. Um, and it's a dark comedy that is self-described as being a combination of uh, Sound of Music and uh, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, self-described wow. uh, and it is yeah it's uh such a trip um it's got quite a lot of like japanese 80s uh, like vaporwave aesthetic uh some very wow. odd claymation zombie fuck? film musical oh. the zombies get their own musical number um oh my god would definitely recommend the happiness of the katakuris if you can find it <laughs> yeah wow yeah anyway my letterbox is just full of gems like that so, <laughs> yeah. so i've been very getting back into it lately it's been fun last couple days somehow just the handmaiden and hbo max caused me to completely spiral again yeah. before this started we were joking that this podcast was going to be sponsored by hbo max <laughs> Please, HBO Max, you have so many oh, movies will, yeah. uh, that we can watch on your platform. Um, yeah, God, I, I do love it though. It's only been like a couple days. They've like quadrupled the content, Aaron. I know. I'm I'm fucking ready to watch some Studio Ghibli movies. I know. I'm ready to watch so many Criterion films that they put on there. And you can watch them too. Go to HBO Max <laughs> slash Gaze Gaze. Hashtag That's sponsored. Hashtag ad. Sponsored by HBO Max. In any way, shape, or form. If a streaming platform ever wanted to sponsor us, I would like jump on it. Yeah, fuck. Like, it's, it's Pride Month. Give us some money, <laughs> HBO baby. <laughs> give us uh, $3. $3. <laughs> well, no, actually, give us like at least. $15. That's right. $15 is all you need to subscribe to HBO Max. <laughs> Go to HBO $15. Max slash gaze gaze. I would gladly accept $15. It would take more than that to get me to sell out. <laughs> yeah. $30. Two months of HBO Max. <laughs> they have Gentleman Jack on there. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to do that at some point. I want to watch I it. I want to watch it, too. Oh, my God. We have so many things on the list. Uh, but speaking so of things, things on the list, uh, next week, we've already decided what oh, we're shit. doing. Um, and yeah. <laughs> do you want to talk about that? Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I know. Me, too. <laughs> you should talk about it. Uh, what? I don't even know. We're watching... Um, the Monster High movie Ghoul's Rule. And we're going to talk about Monster High, the series, the franchise, the characters more generally, and recent developments. Oh, well, what could it be? developments in the Monster High franchise. Mm. If it, it oh. I mean, if we're doing it, it means that the recent developments are gay. <laughs> I wonder if, yeah. I wonder if Monster High is gay. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I'm super excited. I've been a Monster High fan, um, since I was, like, 16, like, 10, 10 years now. God. Yeah. And, uh, it's, like, a corny thing that I'm absolutely obsessed oh, with yeah. and forgot about for a few years and have recently gotten way too deep back into it. So I'm excited. Oh, my to goodness. About it, so. 
Yeah, fingers crossed for a 2020 reboot. Yeah, I mean, it's supposedly on the horizon, so I'm excited to to go over some of that. We'll let you know, maybe, yeah, let's let's hope for some, maybe like in the next two weeks, some news will break or something. (laughs) We could be so lucky. Oh my god, yeah, well, some news already did low-key break, so it's happened in the last couple of weeks, so. Oh. Anyway, we'll talk about it then. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you feel like it, you can follow us on Twitter at GazeGaze, and you can tweet at us. And if you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Uh, you can also email us at Erin at GazeGaze.com and send us your thoughts, ideas, or recommendations. Uh, did you have any Monster High dolls? Um, please oh God, tell us if you made any favorites? of them kiss. If you don't know which one's gay yet, which one do you hope is gay? Or which one is gay? Oh. They're dolls. You can make them do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> you can make them kiss. Um, <laughs> you can make them kiss. <laughs> uh, many thanks to Kate and Leslie of Neon and Nude for allowing us to use their songs Look in Love and You Pretty Thing for our intro and our outro music. You can buy their album at neonandnude.bandcamp.com. Or you can stream it on Spotify. Um, just as a um, reminder, yeah, we already talked. Yeah, do do you know the days for Bandcamp? I don't know. I need to look them up again. <laughs> um, also, I would like I, while I'm looking that up, I guess I'm just going to include this now in the podcast. Sure. <laughs> Here's a an, an editorial outtake. While I'm looking this up, uh. If you please send us your Monster High favorites and or you you can include this if you want, but you don't have to, which why you like them. Um, and we will absolutely go through the list, assess the statistics and uh, review it here. If anybody sends any, any of us who their favorite characters are. OK, on uh, June 5th, which is this Friday, this Friday, uh, if you buy... Um, any music on Bandcamp creators will get the full dollar amount that you are spending. Uh, Bandcamp is not taking any cuts on June 5th or on July 3rd. Um, so if you're looking to buy music, particularly the Neon and Nude album, you should do it on Friday, June 5th or Friday, July 3rd. Mm-hmm. Neonandnude.bandcamp.com. All right. But in, until then, I'm Erin. And I'm Erin. Oh, we're gay. We guess. I'm definitely gay. And I, that's all. Bye. Hey.